The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of reading Melody Baker, I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today for this seventh episode in the special election series is Nicholas Elot. Nick is an associate professor of political science at Södertörn University in Sweden. His main academic interests are in comparative European politics, in particular political parties. Today, we will discuss the context, results, and consequences of the Swedish parliamentary elections that were held last weekend on September 11th. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thank you very much. We'll start with my standard introductory questions. What was the first sports team you ever supported? The first and only is Fulham Football Club. Second, what is your favorite political song? This is a much more difficult one. I think it's probably a rather topical one, which is The Smiths, The Queen is Dead. Finally, what is your favourite political book? This is another difficult one. Could be one about anarchism that I read as an undergraduate, but I've tried many times over the years. I cannot identify it. I got it out of the library as an undergraduate and I just can't find it now. Just can't identify it. So I probably have to go for a book that I read at school, actually, uh, even earlier. And that is uh, Utopia by Thomas More. But it was uh, very interesting at the time. And I was reminded of it constantly when I first started reading literature about Sweden. Let's start by sketching the context of these elections. The 2018 elections left both the left-wing and right-wing bloc without a parliamentary majority because of the rise of the radical right Sweden Democrats. And this led to relatively unstable minority governments. Can you give us a concise summary of the governmental developments in the past four years? I'll try. It's difficult because a great deal has happened. The thing is, the right in Swedish politics has won a pretty comfortable majority over the last few years, if you include this challenger party, the Sweden Democrats, as part of the right. But up until recently, the other parties of the right refused to include the Sweden Democrats. And this let the left in. And so the left has managed to dominate government, albeit with very narrow, fragile minority governments, since 2014. Before and after the 2018 election, there was agonised discussion, you might say, within the right bloc, the centre-right parties in Sweden, about how they were going to deal with the Sweden Democrats. Half of them felt that the time had come to reach some sort of accommodation with the Sweden Democrats. The other half just couldn't entertain that idea. And this disagreement came to a head after the 2018 election. And the alliance, the, the four-party grouping of the centre-right that had been very successful before that, it split over this question. Once again, then, the left stayed in power, supported by half of the old alliance parties, the Centre Party and the Liberal Party. Meanwhile, the two jilted alliance parties, the Moderates and the Christian Democrats, got increasingly cosy with the Sweden Democrats. So the old cordon sanitaire that all the mainstream parties had imposed around the Sweden Democrats sort of dissolved as the Christian Democrats and the Moderates began to talk with them and reach some sort of understanding with them. Then about a year ago, there was disagreement within the left bloc. It caused further turbulence. 
And one of those former centre-right bloc parties, the Liberals, took the chance to defect from the left bloc to the right bloc. And that left the left-wing majority as narrow as it could possibly have been. And that took us up to the election, really. I mean, an incredibly even balance between two nascent blocs, two rather divided blocs, one on the left holding government office by the narrowest possible of margins, and one on the right, which was seeking to challenge it with a new sense of coherence, but still lots of internal disagreement. Right. As you said, a lot happened. But despite that it was only a regular period of four years, there were also two major crises, COVID-19 and Ukraine. So in both cases, Sweden got international attention. With regard to COVID-19, Sweden stood out for its, let's say, lackluster response to covid how did COVID work out in party politics? Did it polarize the population? Were certain parties there who mobilized against government policy? The short answer is no to all of those questions. I think um, the pandemic has had remarkably little effect on most European countries' politics, but it's almost untraceable in Sweden. The experience of the pandemic in Sweden was really, really weird. Elsewhere, I think, as the pandemic went on, you saw an increasing politicization of the response to the pandemic, the measures to, to try to constrain the, the spread of the virus. The left became more supportive of maintaining these restrictions. The right tended to become more sceptical, with some exceptions, of course. If anything, and due to a range of really unpredictable contingent circumstances, it was more the reverse in Sweden. It ended up to be that the left defending the sort of the laissez-faire permissive approach of the Swedish authorities. And it was the right that began to agitate for more restrictive measures, at least at the beginning of the pandemic. So there were protests every now and again, by all accounts, for a very diverse bunch, a mix of new age types, uh, far writers, but lots of people in between. And I would say that no political party drew special benefit from those protests. The Sweden Democrats, for example, they were one of the parties calling for tougher measures. So it didn't benefit the Sweden Democrats in that respect, or indeed any other party. We're currently in a different crisis, that of the Ukraine war, which has on the one hand the energy situation, but for Sweden and Finland, there was an almost more fundamental issue at hand, which was neutrality. And Sweden decided to give up on its age-old and very much cherished neutrality, and asked to join NATO. In what way did that play out in party politics? Was this across-the-board supported? Were there specific parties that were against it? There were specific parties against it, although there were only two, and they were quite small parties. So once the Social Democrats had changed their minds, this spring, which they did with absolutely amazing rapidity. And I think probably because they quickly concluded that if Finland was taking this initiative of applying for NATO membership, then there was simply no room for Sweden to do anything else. So the decision was taken very quickly. All the parties of the right, except the Sweden Democrats, were already in favour of NATO. The Sweden Democrats changed their minds quite quickly so as not to create an obstacle to cooperation with the other right-wing parties. And that created quite a big parliamentary majority in favour. What surprises me a little bit, though, is that there wasn't more dissent within the Social Democratic Party about this dramatic change of security policy. As you said, the policy in some quarters in Sweden was very much cherished, particularly on the left. It was a big part of social democratic ideological history. And I'm slightly surprised there hasn't been more vocal dissent within the party about the decision to junk it. 
And then, as I said, there are two anti-NATO parties, the Greens and the left. And it really is striking that they chose not to push the issue at all in the campaign. So this massive change almost went undiscussed during the whole election campaign. So what were the main issues during the campaign? Well, there's a simple initial answer to that question. It's the first time this particular topic can be said to have dominated, really dominated a Swedish election campaign. It's been creeping up the agenda in the last few election campaigns, but this time it was very, very dominant. And that is law and order. And in a sense, law and order can be said to have subsumed the issue of immigration as well. Because if the Sweden Democrats have won great rhetorical success or discursive success, you might say, over the last few years, it is to effectively conflate the issues of law and order and immigration. To make such a connection used to be taboo, but now all the major parties do it without thinking twice. And that really dominated the campaign because Sweden has a big problem with particularly gang violence. There's conflict that proceeds almost sort of continuously with guns and bombs even used to a really remarkably high degree. And this gradually come to dominate the political agenda. There has been talk as well about energy prices, both petrol prices and electricity prices, although that didn't really energize the debate. I think, you know, all the parties are agreed that something has to be done there. Although there was some disagreement about uh, petrol prices in particular. And then I suppose there was also discussion about what the Swedes call the government question, Rehering's which is about, okay, which parties are going to get into office and which aren't? Who can collaborate with whom? Who refuses to collaborate with whom? Those sorts of questions. The exit polls were remarkably close to the final result for individual parties, but were completely wrong on who got the majority. And so now we know that the right-wing bloc including the Sweden Democrats, have the majority and are going to govern. What is the government going to look like in composition? Well, there are bits about that that we can know with some certainty already and others that are unknown. I should say that the exit poll was very close, but the fact that it was very close and yet didn't get the result right is another indication of how incredibly finely balanced the political forces are in Sweden between those parties that associate with the left bloc and those that associate with the right bloc. It just took a small margin of error to completely flip the result, which was a great disappointment to the people in charge of the exit poll. We know, to get back to your question, we know that the four parties of the right, the Sweden Democrats, the Moderates, the Christian Democrats and the Liberals, will almost certainly comprise a governing majority because they said that they would. And they're now engaged in talks between themselves to try to work out how it's going to be organised. And the main question is, initially at least, who gets into government. It's pretty clear that the moderates will supply the prime minister. The Christian Democrats will very probably also join the government. Question is, will the Sweden Democrats join the government and will the Liberals join the government? That remains unclear. My own guess at this stage is that the Sweden Democrats, their joining the government would probably be a bridge too far for the other three centre-right parties at the moment. So that probably won't happen. The Liberals may well stay out as well, but those questions are still unclear. Okay, so let's talk about the Sweden Democrats. International journalists don't get tired of mentioning its neo-Nazi roots. And so pretty much the whole conversation now in the international media is not so much a far-right party, a radical right party will join the government or support the government. We have seen that all over the place. 
but there is a suggestion that the Sweden Democrats is more radical than other radical right parties like Le Pen's uh, Rassemblement National or the FPÖ in Austria because of its neo-Nazi roots. Where do you see that party? Yeah, this is a very difficult question. The thing I would perhaps start by saying is that this party, the Sweden Democrat, is often referred to as populist. And my own little hobby horse here is that I prefer not to use that term in connection to the Sweden Democrats. I think if populism means anything in the description of party politics, then it doesn't really cover the Sweden Democrats very well. So that's something I should perhaps start with. I don't see them as a terribly populist party. For which if reason? As I understand the term populism, it essentially relates to a philosophy of society in which, to simplify, there is a rather corrupt and self-interested elite whose interests are aligned against the virtuous people. Very much a vertical vision of political conflict. And I don't really see that the Sweden Democrats use that sort of rhetoric or have that sort of analysis. They've used populist rhetoric in the past, perhaps still do now, but I just don't really think they do it much more than any other party, perhaps less so than some parties on the left. And so for me, it's not a label that I find very useful. If we talk about extreme and radical and words like that, then I suppose the obvious next question is, okay, radical and extreme compared to what? And I think 10, 15 years ago, there was such an enormous gap between the Sweden Democrats on one hand and the mainstream or all the other Swedish parties on the other hand, then it would be fair to say that in a relative sense, the Sweden Democrats were very radical, even extreme. So much has changed over the last 10 or 15 years. The other parties, including the Social Democrats, have shifted their policy positions on things like immigration and law and order towards the area in which the Sweden Democrats used to have a complete monopoly. That's one change. But also the Sweden Democrats themselves have changed. They've moved towards the political mainstream. And these days, the Sweden Democrats style themselves as a social conservative party with a nationalist perspective. I think that's probably the best translation of how they describe themselves. They talk about social conservatism and, and a solidaristic welfare model as the most important tools in building a good society. I'm quoting from their party program. And I think that that's not an unfair description that they have of themselves, a nationalist social conservative party these days. So does that mean that you think they're not comparable to a party like the FPÖ or Vox or Brothers of Italy? They're more conservative than a radical right party? Do you think they're nativist or they're just nationalist? I think I prefer the term nationalist. They talk a lot about culture. They talk a lot about tradition. They talk a lot about community. But their definition of the national community has changed over the years. Uh, they went through a phase of referring a lot to what they called an open nationalism, in which nobody was necessarily excluded from that definition, wherever they were born or wherever they had grown up, as long as they embraced Swedish culture and committed to Swedish culture. And I suppose you could say, although they didn't use the word, were assimilated by a Swedish culture. And so I suppose my own categorization of that would be a, a rather nationalist, social conservative perspective on the world. And what they don't have is any sort of liberal or libertarian origin. So the party's quite different in that respect from something like the Norwegian Progress Party. Right. Now, leaving aside the ideology, in terms of just politics, the Sweden Democrats are pretty untested as a governing party. Do you think that that will make the future government unstable? Because even as the support party, the margin is so small that if some people split off any of the parties, the coalition loses its majority. 
Indeed. So that question is really difficult to answer. I would say that part of the success of the Sweden Democrats, its constant march forward electorally has been because its leading clique, you might say, has exercised a pretty firm control over the party. So it has been able to impose its will of a party that has moved towards the mainstream, which has the objective of having influence over policy through relationships with other parties. It's been able to impose that strategy pretty consistently and dissenting voices have been kicked out of the party quite effectively. So I would say that in the main, the party is at least capable of making a choice between whether it wants to continue in that vein and establish a reputation as a sort of reliable party of government or if it feels that it needs to retain its challenger status, its image as a vehicle for protest, and thus do things and says things that offends its coalition partners in order to, to maintain that reputation. It can at least probably make a choice between how they balance those objectives. On the other hand, you're absolutely right that the majority is so narrow that even a handful or just a couple of members of that parliamentary group of the Sweden Democrats who evade that discipline could cause immense trouble. So it's very, very difficult to say. Now, as you said, the Sweden Democrats have moved to the mainstream. At the same time, the mainstream has moved to the Sweden Democrats, right? There's been quite a lot of talk about the move to the right on immigration, in particular of the moderates, the mainstream right-wing party. But there's also been a lot of critique that the Social Democrats moved that way and that they were almost the same as the Danish Social Democrats who have really hammered on the nativist agenda. Can you say a little bit more of how the Social Democrats have tried to deal with this issue of law and order that has become racialized? Yeah, well, this is a really fascinating question in relation to all the Swedish parties, but perhaps in relation to the Social Democrats above all. Five years ago, perhaps, Danish Social Democrats were an object of fear and loathing among the Swedish Social Democrats. The idea of following the Danish path of perhaps shifting left on economic policy, but shifting very strongly to the right on questions of immigration and law and order, that was unthinkable. But there were some signs of it in the previous election campaign, and there was plenty of it in this election campaign. So this this is a big big change for Swedish social democracy. And it will be enormously interesting to see how it develops from here. The first test, I suppose, will be the interpretation in the party of whether this new strategy, this Danish strategy, whether it worked or not. Because in some respects, it did work. This was a good election for the Social Democrats. It's the first time they've increased their votes in a long, long time, in a long run of elections. So in one sense, this was a success for the Social Democrats. On the other hand, of course, they've lost power. They will now go into opposition. And some suggest that the party could have done even better, the left bloc could have done even better if it hadn't devoted so much time to discussing the questions that were really the natural territory of the right of the Sweden Democrats and the moderates. What the Social Democrats do now is really unpredictable, partly because of the party's peculiar institutions. They have a leader who resigned this morning as Prime Minister, Magdalena Andersson, who's been in place for only 10 months. And the way that the party chooses its leaders, I mean, I needn't go into the details, but it's a procedure that involves behind the scenes negotiation between the leading power centres of the party. So there's no open competition between candidates. There's no open debate. There's no open voting between candidates. It's all negotiated behind the scenes. And one of the upshots of a system like that is that the new leader arrives in place having been negotiated into that position, having been the candidate of consensus within the power structures of the party, without any particular mandate 
to move it in one direction or another. And this particular leader, Magdalena Andersen, her intellectual reputation is also very opaque. We don't really know what her brand of social democracy looks like. It's all completely unknown. And so it's not clear what she wants, and it's not even clear what the party wants or could tolerate. And so how the party adapts to opposition, how it stops simply trying to broker compromises between its smaller parties and starts thinking for itself again, deciding what it wants, thinking about policy again, thinking about its own strategy again, this could go in all sorts of different directions. I really will be fascinated to see which one the party lands on. So overall, at the aggregate level, the results were pretty stable. The biggest increase was of the Sweden Democrats of only 3%. And all of the other switches were within 2% and often even less than 1%. And that looks like a big stability. But at the same time, you do see some transformations. For example, the Social Democrats, like in most other countries these days, have a very old electorate did particularly poorly among the young. But what I found particularly remarkable was that in the youngest age bracket, it was not the Greens as so often that did the best, but it was the moderates. Is there an explanation of why the classic bourgeois right-wing party is the biggest party among the youth in Sweden? Yeah, well, not an explanation that I've heard anyway. We see demographic changes in the distribution of the vote that are really quite interesting. We see men and women voting differently to a bigger extent than ever before. And we see age groups voting very differently as well. But to answer the question of how the Greens, which have got double figures amongst first-time voters since 1994, have got 16% of first-time voters, according to exit polls in 2016, how they then sunk to 5% in this election is really striking. And it's not just that the moderates have been hoovering up the votes of the first-time voters. They got 26%, but the Sweden Democrats got 22% amongst first-time voters. So collectively, you know, that's getting off for nearly half of first-time voters. And I'm afraid I don't really have a good, firm hypothesis as to why this trend should have taken place. And I haven't even heard any such hypothesis. From my own part, I can only speculate that I've seen other surveys which suggest that youngsters, so older teenagers and people in their early 20s, do have a relatively high level of personal experience of crime and feel disproportionately vulnerable to crime as well. So it's just conceivable, I suppose, that that feeling of vulnerability is translated into a swing to the right. But as I say, that is pure speculation. One concept, one word that has been much discussed in Sweden in the campaign and, and in generally is the question of segregation. And this is used in Swedish to describe a sort of self-sorting process by which people with immigrant backgrounds and with ethnic Swedish backgrounds sort themselves into separate neighbourhoods, really, and separate institutions like schools and colleges and that sort of thing. And it's just possible that this process of separation may have contributed to this change of opinion amongst the younger voters. But again, that is pure speculation. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about Swedish party politics? Well, I thought a lot about this question. And if I have to define something as a misunderstanding, I think that there is an underestimation, both here in Sweden and abroad, about how well Swedish democracy, which of course is party democracy in a parliamentary system, is working. My own view is that it's working less well than many people seem to realise. It's working less well because I think it's falling short in particular on the question of accountability and of allowing voters to exercise accountability retrospectively on things that have happened previously. We've had a series of not just minority governments, but very, very weak minority governments. 
And what's more, those minority governments have in the last few years stopped regarding their budgets as issues of confidence. So it's become possible for a government to lose the parliamentary vote on its budget, to be forced to implement an opposition budget, but without resigning itself. And I think this really does cloud the issue of retrospective accountability. Whose policy was it really? Can we attribute it to this side, the government side or the opposition side? And that, I think, is undesirable from a a sort of normative democratic perspective. Uh, The other part of that, I think, is the power of the public agencies in Sweden. The pandemic, if it uh, revealed anything to me, was how enormous the potential for the wielding of power that certain public agencies have. And these are also somewhat, at least, insulated from direct democratic control. I don't want to exaggerate that, but perhaps that uh, degree of autonomy of public decision makers is perhaps underestimated, yeah, both in Sweden and abroad. So I think there are ways in which Swedish party politics could work a lot better from a, a normative democratic point of view. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Nick. You're very welcome. It was great fun. You can find more information about Nicholas Eilert through his rather minimalistic webpage at www.com. NicholasAlot.net, not com, net. And you can follow him on Twitter at, at NicholasAlot. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist, it goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You see, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I'm seeing Dad at Dunkow, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.